This is Bloomberg Business Week. I'm Carol Masser. And I'm Jason Kelly. We're here every day bringing you the latest news from the world of business and finance. Plus technology, politics, economics, all harnessing the power of Bloomberg Business Week reporters and editors. Not to mention our 2,700 journalists and analysts in more than 120 countries. You can download Bloomberg Business Week on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to our radio show weekdays at 2 p.m. Eastern, only on Bloomberg Radio. This next story is about tapping into the power of the sun. It's also among our most read stories on the Bloomberg Today. It's about the $1 billion solar plant that Jason was obsolete before it ever went online. It's a fascinating story. It absolutely is. Chris Martin wrote it. He's here with us in our Bloomberg Interactive Brokers studio. So, Chris, uh, talk to us about what's going on here because we've heard a lot about alternative energy, but this doesn't bode well, it feels like. (laughs) No, this is one of those uh, strange projects that uh, had uh, a lot of uh, technology and, and promise going for it, but uh, it was built at a time before solar power prices came down, and uh, it um, it wasn't completed properly, so it never produced as much power as it was supposed to. All right, so was it just a bad timing element, or was there a lot more at play here? There was more at play. It was bad timing, uh, because there there are two main solar technologies, solar panels that you see on the roof, and then this is a giant solar... uh, thermal power plant with all of these mirrors that, that point the, uh, the, the sun's rays to a, a turbine. Right. So it heats up water, and uh, this one was unique in that it also included storage. So it had eight hours of storage, which, which makes it a little more valuable than you know, just a single solar panel. But the prices of the solar panels came down so quickly in the last decade that this power <coughs> was a lot more expensive. And so what happens from here to this particular place? Well, we don't know. It's not clear yet. Uh, It could be sold for scrap. Uh, The deal we took over control in in September, uh, according to a lawsuit that was filed by the uh, former uh, owners. And uh, that lawsuit is still active. We don't know what's going to happen there. Uh, the technology itself is is uh, kind of difficult to get up and running. Uh, well, that, can we just dig into that a little bit? Because it sounds like it's the mirrors versus the panels, right? That's right, And yeah. the panels got a lot cheaper, and so it made a lot more business sense to kind of pursue that. Is is that kind of what happened? It's like a couple of different standards out there, and this one won? Well, that's that's part of it. There, there are some operating thermal plants out there. Uh, they do exist. They are producing power. Okay. Um, it's more common in, uh, like, Spain and uh in Chile, in the desert areas, right. uh, but they're huge power plants. They take up you know square miles instead of just rooftops. So this has been a, a real political football, to say the least. A lot of political disagreement. I think back to the Obama administration, and obviously this was a huge issue that was hotly debated. Uh, where does politics enter into this? Well, this was uh, a part of the stimulus package that Obama had uh, supported. And uh, it, it's one of those technologies that uh, could have done really well if it were properly built. Uh, it would still be expensive in, in today's terms, mm-hmm. but uh, it's, it's just an interesting kind of technology where you've got that, you know, all these mirrors in the desert. It's kind of like out of a James Bond film or something. You say properly built. Was it not properly built? Well, that's in contention, uh, and that's part of the lawsuit uh, that... Uh, they had a leak in the storage tank, and so it could never function as it was supposed to function. 
Who built it? uh, It was built by, uh, it was developed by a U.S. company who hired a Spanish contractor to come over and uh, build it. And uh, there were some differences about how it was supposed to operate and where the parts came from. Uh, And uh, yeah, so the plant never really got up and running. Well, and even as you describe the town where it's located, I mean, the history is fascinating and and, and maybe this was meant to be in sort of a perverse way because (laughs) this has been the site of some other boom and busts, right? That's right. It was a silver mining town that that did really well at the turn of the century and and, uh, hasn't had much going for it since. I guess what I always wonder about this, you know, as we pursue alternative forms of energy, you know, what are the lessons learned or is this to be expected as we kind of make our way along this path? Oh, yeah, I mean, this there's going to be big mistakes. This is just one, you know, failure um, of, of many that, you know, when you invest in new technologies, um, you're going to have some uh, that, that don't make it. Uh, this plant in particular uh, is you know has its own situation. It has its own problems. Yeah. But the uh, you know the technology can be developed and, and new plants built like this. It's just it costs a lot more these days than to put out a bunch of solar panels. Well, and as you say, uh, obviously a lot of attention paid to this. The failures uh, may be as much as the successes in many ways. Chris Martin, Cleantech and Renewables reporter for Bloomberg News. It's one of the most read stories on the Bloomberg today, this billion-dollar solar plant, obsolete before it even got online. I think what I love about this story and going back to, um, you know, we were talking a lot about the Golden Globes. I mean, everybody was talking about the fires that are going on in Australia at this point. And I just think um, climate change is front and center. And so I think, you know, as people look for alternative methods, there are going to be these failures. But I do think everybody's talking about it, trying to figure out what's a better path. And yet it does remain this really contentious issue politically yes. when you have people arguing over what a good alternative is uh, and whether we should be investing in these types of areas. All right. Well, you are listening to Bloomberg Business Week. John Authors joins us. He is senior editor for Bloomberg Markets. He joins us on the phone from London. He has got one of the most read stories on the Bloomberg, breaking it down, what the past may tell us or may not about where we're headed this year. John, great to catch up with you. Happy New Year. I'm, I'm glad you did catch up with me. I'm commuting in uh, in London at the moment. It's uh, not a pleasant experience, London in January. So uh, <laughs> great to talk to you. Great to have you here. I got to tell you, I, I love yep. this this line in your first paragraph of your Bloomberg Opinion column. When it comes to investing in stocks and bonds, there isn't much relevant experience to draw on, which is kind of interesting because yep. so many folks will come back and say, well, this reminds me of this market year or this market year, and that's why yep. I know what's going to happen in the future. You say hogwash. Well, yes, that, 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 um, I might have been slightly more polite than that, but yes. <laughs> I, I mean, the main, the, main, uh, the main point I'm trying to make is that when you're trying to look for the big macro turns, which are what uh, people are really paid to, make, paid to do when they're in the investment industry, and which is why uh, hedge funds, active managers in general, had a very bad entire decade in the last decade, um, there really aren't that many major turning points in markets in macro conditions to look back on Uh, and that's true almost by definition certainly in terms of having anything that you can say is uh, statistically valid just isn't going to happen if you're looking for major turning points there's there's plenty of sort of minute trading movements that uh, that uh, a quant can look at but 
uh, when it really comes to the question of how is this year going to do, we don't actually have that much information. And so as you look back over the last 20 years or so, which you do so nicely in this piece, John, what do you see that jumps out at you that could give us at least a little hint of what we're headed toward? Right. Well, the worrying indicators, certainly the the single most scary one, uh, is that there is a similarity to the beginning of 2000, which uh, many will remember was the year that uh, the dot-com bubble reached its final peak and then burst. Now, to be clear, there's no way anybody could say that things are as overextended, as overvalued now as they were at the beginning of 2000. But what is interesting is that that is the single clearest um, previous instance where the Fed really put in a lot of money to the repo market. That time around was because people were worried about the, the Y2K computer bug. Remember that? Um, this time around, it's because the, the repo market froze over uh, back in September. Now, the total amounts involved in terms of supporting that repo market are almost identical proportionately in this instance as they were in the Y2K. In fact, that's the single most similar uh, episode where the Fed behaved like this. And it's probably not coincidental that the NASDAQ boom went utterly ballistic the week they started doing that because it's, you know, you're making very cheap, very short-term money available. Uh, and the week they finally stopped supporting the repo market uh, in, uh, I think it was either the last week of March, the first week of April the following year, the NASDAQ dropped 25%. So nobody is saying that it's going to fall that much. But right. Right. it's very interesting how the, uh, the repo, the Fed's move to help repo towards the end of last year coincided very neatly with the stock market putting all its worries behind it and going into warp drive. And that does raise the question of what happens when they take it off again. John, just got about a minute left here. What about it being an election year? Because we often have conversations about that and people seem to think that that provides some certainty in terms of predicting the the future. Your thoughts on that in just about a minute. Well, in, in terms of general patterns there, because there are a few more, generally this year, the last year is a bad year because people are uncertain. The year that has been really good is the third year, which we've just finished, when the incumbent is trying to juice the economy, make people feel happy. Uh, there is good reason to think that might happen again, at least until we get some resolution. Depending on the exact identity of the Democratic nominee, people could get very worried indeed before the beginning of the year. No certainty, but that's another reason for consent. All right, John Arthur, it's great to catch up with you. It's a must read and one of the most read on the Bloomberg today. Happy New Year in 2020, question mark. History argues against it. John joined us on the phone from London. It's a great point because I think about how many conversations we have around this table that says, well, okay, you know, this is what this, you know, cycle reminds me of this market cycle. And here's where I think, you know, we're going as a result. So lots of questions out there. This is Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser and Jason Kelly on Bloomberg Radio. So Jason, debate inside and outside of the White House about the implications of the killing of Iranian General Qasem Soleimani. Now, one thing, though, according to our Andy Brown, Bloomberg New Economy editorial director, is that with his death, an economically struggling Iran has been dealt a devastating security blow. But it's not just about that country. There are so many other parties involved, and in particular, China. And that's what we want to dig into uh, with Andy. Andy back in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio in New York. You know, we were talking about, Andy, after 
our producer Paul Brennan and Jason and I read your story, this is a different take on what's going on in Iran. And just a reminder that it's it's multifaceted in terms of the concerns and the worries. Tell us though about kind of the China interest that we need to be concerned about. So the China interest starts with geography, as Robert Kaplan keeps reminding us. I mean, Iran occupies this crucial part of territory connecting the Middle East with Central Asia and onwards to Western China. Eurasia, in other words, which is precisely the territory traversed by China's uber-important and ambitious Belt and Road Initiative. Mm -hmm. So Iran is a critical component of Belt and Road. From an energy perspective, China's strategic interest is to build oil pipelines across the northern uh, routes between the Middle East and China, bypassing the maritime southern routes that go through the Malacca Strait. And China has always been extremely concerned about the prospect of a U.S. naval blockade in the Malacca Straits in the event of war and is looking of ways to, you know, get around what it calls the Malacca Straits dilemma. So Iran is critical in all of that piece. And so what do we expect that China may do here, or are they just waiting to see how this all plays out. What what action could they take, either implicit or explicit? Well, China's going to keep out of this. Yeah. I mean, China does not want to get entangled in conflicts in the Middle East. Actually, China has bigger, one could say that China has even bigger interests in the Middle East, economic interests and security interests than the United States. As the U.S. becomes Mm -hmm. less and less reliant on oil flows from the Middle East through the Strait of Hormuz, China becomes more and more uh, uh, reliant on these flows. 44% of all of China's energy comes from the Middle East. So, you know, it it doesn't have, it does not want to see turmoil uh, in the Middle East. Uh, on the other hand, I think the most likely outcome uh, of these increased tensions or renewed tensions now between the U.S. and Iran will be to drive China and Iran even closer together. Right. That's what, you know, I've thought about since this news broke is I just kind of am so curious about allies and other major countries and their reaction to this. And I think this is what this is all about in terms of how China plays this. Sure. Or reacts to it. I mean, China has very complicated relationships in the Middle East, as do all of the major right. powers. I mean, just a few days before this killing, this 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 latest uh, assassination. Russia, the navies of Russia, China, and Iran were holding naval uh, naval uh, exercises right. mm-hmm. in the Indian Ocean and the Strait of Oman. So you already had this growing nexus between these three between these three countries. Having said that, actually, Iran, although Iran is a major oil supplier to China, and China has billions of dollars invested in the country. I mean, it's banks lend there, it's building out the Tehran subway system, it builds dams and highways, the usual sort of Chinese infrastructure play. Having said that, Saudi Arabia, Iran's arch enemy, is by far the more important energy supplier to China. And, you know, one of the things you point out in your column, Andy, is this notion of the pivot that the Obama administration made to Asia uh, back in the day. It seems like a long time ago. It actually wasn't uh, that long ago. And that is how many have been proceeding in terms of U.S. foreign policy and ultimately U.S. economic policy. What does this latest turn, as it were, do to that? Right. Well, look, China is by no means unhappy. 
to see the United States bogged down in more conflict in the Middle East. As a matter of fact, it sees this as a strategic opportunity. Remember Obama's pivot to Asia. This was his big geostrategic play. Having poured blood, U.S. blood and treasure into the Middle East, the idea was we now need to focus on a part of the world that will be the nexus, the real hub of the 21st century economy, uh, which is East Asia. And his pivot had a decidedly militaristic flavor. Right. Don't forget it was announced by then Secretary of State Hillary, Hillary Clinton on the deck of a warship anchored in Manila Bay. What's interesting is, and you're right, that the U.S.-Iran flare-up will work to Beijing's advantage from a geopolitical perspective. You know, there are flare-ups, and then there's instability. And I do wonder about, right, there's a point where if Iran becomes so unstable, that's problematic for China, right, in terms of its longer-term ambitions. Sure, it's problematic for China. I mean, the spike in oil prices would be problematic for China, given that it's the world's largest oil importer. Uh, and it's already, the, the economy is already in trouble as a result of slowing industrial growth and investment and so on. What about in terms of, you mentioned Saudi Arabia, which is even more important to China. I do wonder about that trifecta of China, Saudi Arabia, and the United States. That's a complicated relationship, potentially. All these relationships in the Middle East are incredibly complicated, which is why that would argue for China to actually be extremely cautious. And so what you're seeing, big, big picture, for now, China is stepping back. It does not want to get engaged in this fight. All right, so we can't have you in this studio with asking you about the trade war <laughs> and the trade negotiations between the U.S. and China. Where are we? Phase one, it looks like January 15th will be some sort of day that we mark uh, with a signing, a potential meeting upcoming between Presidents Trump and Xi. But where are we in terms of the next phase, I dare say, of these agreements? And does Iran kind of complicate this? Look, President Trump is going to be very much distracted by Iran for the foreseeable future. I mean, this really puts this, the, the trade agreement into, into perspective. This was never a very important trade agreement. I mean, this was President Trump listening to his economic advisors saying, you've got to do something, you've got to get, a, you've got to get some kind of a truce here ahead of the elections, right? We can't have the U.S. economy tanking just while you're seeking re-election. That's what this deal is all about. This was phase one. So it's essentially a purchasing agreement, soybeans and right. so on, with a little bit of, of intellectual property protection thrown in. The next phase, which is supposedly to address these big issues. Intellectual property. Intellectual property, uh, Chinese subsidies to state enterprises, forced technology transfers, all of these things which have been put on the, on the back burner. Trump was tweeting a few weeks ago, I'm going to go to China and kickstart phase two negotiations with, with Iran yeah. uh, as it is now. I would have thought that that uh, timetable has been significantly delayed. All right. Uh, great context as always. We love having you here. Andy Brown, editorial director of Bloomberg New Economy. All right, so Jason and I keep talking about how this story increasingly playing out like fiction, twists and turns, not to mention the latest involving trains, planes, and audacity marking the great escape of former revered auto executive Carlos Ghosn. Here with what went into that escape and what's to come. Uh, joining us is Matthew Campbell, senior reporter at Bloomberg News. He's on the phone in Beirut, Lebanon, along with Joel Weber, Bloomberg Business Week editor in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio right here in New York City. Matt, um, so glad to have you here with us. You're Smack in the middle of it all. Um, this escape, months in the making, lots of planning, and still uh, we're going to hear from the key character uh, later this week. 
That's right, Carol. So Carlos Ghosn is now safely in Lebanon, a country where he spent most of his adolescence. Uh, we are expecting he will give uh, some kind of press conference on Wednesday where he will uh, break the silence he's maintained ever since he arrived here uh, just before New Year's. And uh, really, all eyes are going to be on, on what he has to say, uh, which uh, could be pretty dramatic. So, Matt, uh, everything over the last week has been uh, dramatic, to say the <laughs> least. Uh, and, and your story that's out uh, today, I think, does a pretty amazing job of tying up all, all the various threads that, that we've known out there. What, what are some of the more startling ones to you that, that you have in your story? Well, we now have a, a pretty solid picture of how uh, Gone was able to escape uh, what appeared to be a, a very comprehensive net of surveillance of his movements in Japan, uh, somehow find his way to an airport, somehow get his way onto an airplane, uh, and then make it to Lebanon. Uh, he had a significant amount of help, uh, notably from a guy called Michael Taylor, a former Green Beret, uh, who specializes in this kind of uh, covert operation. Uh, another uh, man called uh, Georges-Antoine Zayek, uh, was a veteran of the Lebanese Civil War, uh, was also involved. So bit by bit, we are figuring out uh, just how he was able to do this. Uh, and it is really an incredible story, but uh, one where he took an enormous risk uh, trying to escape Japan. Had he been caught, he would certainly have gone right back to jail. But it did pay off for him. And so, Matt, help us understand what what it's like on the ground there in terms of what the Lebanese are saying about this. This is a guy who ended up on a postage stamp at, at some point, right, in, in Lebanon. As you say, he dates back to his adolescence there. What, what are the Lebanese saying about their role in all of this going forward? Well, there has been, uh, Jason, a, a series of reactions. There's no question that Ghosn is a very prominent, uh, very celebrated uh, member of, of Lebanon's business community. People are proud of him, uh, particularly in the, in the Lebanese Christian community, which is where he's from. Uh, you know, there is, uh, that said, uh, the government has been quite careful to not, uh, not indicate in any way that it sponsored or assisted in this escape, which could, of course, uh, lead to some serious diplomatic blowback from Japan. Uh, were the Lebanese government demonstrated to have played some kind of role. So for politicians here, it is a, it is a tricky balancing act of both uh, welcoming back this, this favorite son, but also not necessarily endorsing his actions. Uh, and, and beyond that, of course, this is just the biggest story in town. As you can imagine, there are uh, huge crowds of, of reporters from Japan camped out outside uh, the building where uh, Gon is believed to be staying. Uh, Which you know, one of the, is noteworthy uh, also because right. it's uh, a, a building that is uh, owned by Nissan still. Yes, which is remarkable. So among the many strange entanglements here is that uh, Gon appears and his wife appear to be uh, in a residence uh, paid for and owned by Nissan, uh, where there, and there has been an ongoing legal dispute about their ability uh, to use that residence. So this is going to just run and run and run. And so even though the story is about a year old, it has quite a long way to go. So I want to go back to the dramatic escape because I, th I felt like you guys got some details uh, about how he actually got from Tokyo to Lebanon that are noteworthy. One being that there was a train that was actually used. I mean, everybody had, has been reporting that it was just a plane, but you guys uh, revealed that there was also a train ride. 
Indeed, Joel. So, so what what seems to have happened is that uh, Gone left his home in Tokyo, and rather than uh, being smuggled in, you know, the the base of a the wheelbase of a truck or uh, some other you know bit of spycraft, he appears to have just gotten on a bullet train to Osaka uh, and gone from there on to to Osaka's international airport. So he was in some ways uh, hiding in plain sight, uh, going about. What would have been, uh, if not a normal day, certainly uh, something he was allowed to do. He was allowed to travel within Japan. Uh, and so right up until the moment when he perhaps he reached the airport, he could have said, if challenged, that he was just uh, going down to Osaka for the day. Right. Amazing. And then he was indeed smuggled as baggage. So many great details in this story. We know we're going to be talking with you and eager for your reporting throughout the week. Matt Campbell, senior reporter for Bloomberg News, joining us on the phone from Beirut. And that is where Carlos Ghosn currently is. We expect to hear from Carlos Ghosn later this week. As Matt Campbell said, our thanks to Joel Weber, the editor of Bloomberg Business Week. He was here with us in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio. Every time I read this story, I just think about all Whoa-a. the times that, yeah. I kept saying WOA well, as this was coming out I've in talked to him absence. a couple times over the years. I mean, this was somebody you wanted to, you know, anything in the auto industry you wanted to talk yeah. to. So it's just staggering to get your head around it. I'm driving in my car. I turn on the radio. How about you let me drive? Oh, no, 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 no. Who's going to drive you home? Honey, please, I'll do the driving. Drive on. Excuse me, I want to drive. Just drive, baby. It's the question that drives us. This is the drive to the close. That funky music will drive us till the dawn. On Bloomberg Radio. It is time for the drive to the close. Henley Smith is back with us, Senior Relationship Manager at NY-based, New York-based, Stonecastle Cash Management. Stands for New York. NYC, some people call it. Be kind. Be kind. That's my new, that's what Tom Hanks says. Be kind. Which has $17 billion in assets under management. And Ellen, be kind. Uh, He joins us here in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio. I just think it's a great, like, mantra for 2020. It is. I'm going to get a little fuzzy and, you know, warm and and fuzzy on you. Well, again, I I think our little sliver of certainty kind of evaporated. But so being kind can be great. But it, it felt good while it lasted. What changed based on what I mean a lot changed certainly geopolitically but when you as an investor what changed well I mean I think uh, coming up into the end of the year everything everything was falling into place trade everything was falling into place and all of a sudden it was kind of ripped away from us which I think is kind of a statement on management by chaos if I will say so uh, I've been in that situation before but let's let's always be seen I mean is it going to evaporate or is it going to come back? Hopefully it'll come back. Well, because what's so interesting is, you know, we saw the market really take a dip on Friday and yet we come in here, we're in the red to start the day, but we look like we're going to end if it holds right here with the Dow, the S&P, the NASDAQ all up, the NASDAQ up five tenths of 1%. Yeah. Well, let's hope cooler heads prevail in this situation. Um, we know it's a difficult situation, but back to the economics, uh, you know, again, I think things have been you know, falling into place uh, and that's, that's a good thing. And you've seen that. Well, and what's interesting is I was listening to Bloomberg Surveillance this morning, um, and I think our Gina Martin-Adams was on, and just talking about corporate earnings that are to, co- to come, and our comparisons are going to be easier, correct? Especially when we get into the second half of, of I think, 
this year. Yeah, so I do wonder when you look at corporate earnings, what what should we be looking for that says, okay, things are actually better than maybe everybody thought they would be? Well, I can think just that. I mean, but I think we've been through a lot this last year from you know the pivot that we went through this time last year. It remains to be, I think, uh, uh, to remind everybody, this time last year was a very different situation. We were looking at definitely 3% funds target, a 4% 10-year note. Everyone was wrong about that one. Mm-hmm. So I think I think uh, we're, we're, we're dealing with the, with the long cycle. It's the end of the cycle. We, we're dealing with an inverted yield curve for most of the Do year. Do we not really know what's going to happen? John Authors was on from Bloomberg uh, Markets and just saying that we really don't have um, any great era in past history because we don't go through these big macro cycles very often. Well, I think that's the case. I think it's just a function of where we've been for the last 10 years. We've been dealing with manipulated markets, with QE, with a low funds target, with zero interest rate policy. And, and that I think what you saw back in September with the, when the repo facilities started to go haywire, I mean, I think we're just trying to figure out where we should be relative to where we've been. Mm-hmm. And it's a difficult thing. We're dealing with uncertain ground. And I would say, you know, as we've talked about before, it's a great time to be a trader. It's probably the smartest time to be a long-term investor. But as a portfolio manager, you're dealing with uncertain ground and things that used to be, you could say, if A and B happen, then pretty much C is going to happen. That doesn't happen anymore. So Mm -hmm. I think what we've seen specifically in our business as cash as an allocation, a valuable allocation, continues to grow. And I think that's going to be what you're going to see in 2020. Cash as an allocation and portfolio will continue to grow. It will continue to be a very valuable one, especially where you see high net worth uh, individuals, family offices. Uh, you're seeing cash continue to build. In the corporate institutional space, we've seen that as well. And again, as we've talked about before, cash, uh, which usually is kind of a, no pun intended, default investment, yeah. is one that you have to pay attention to, one that takes some time to understand because there are a lot, there's a lot of choice out there and you want to make the right choice, especially at this particular time. But how much do you worry about having another year like last year where you'd sort of, to use a technical term, feel like a bit of a sucker if you like you had too much in cash as the equity markets just raged on yeah. through 19. Well, I think that's probably what you'll see some kind of, you know, the wall of worry that will yeah. continue to climb. Um, I think that, again, just what my sense is, again, you're going into an election year, you think it'll be a good year for stocks, a good year for the economy because of that. But again, the political rhetoric, as we all know, is going to is going to intensify. And I think a lot of people look at presidential elections and look at after presidential elections. And I Mm. think that's what a lot of people are planning for. So where do you put money? (laughs) Where do you put, you say there's a lot of cash sitting out there and you say, obviously you've got to be very smart about where you kind of allocate that cash. Where do you put it? Well, Where again, would you in this environment? Yeah, I, well, again, I, I, I'm one to be in an insured product, uh, insured deposit product. Uh, those are things that are getting a lot more uh, play these days where you're seeing uh, FDIC insured. Uh, obviously, where people have been traditionally have been in tra- tra- treasury money market funds, but we know that the uh, that the Fed is buying a lot of Treasury bills. Yeah. Uh, in fact, they've announced that they're buying $60 billion, but we all know that it's more than that. And I it think sounds so risk off. Yeah, it, it does. Uh, and we know that program's ending uh, this time, at, we think, sometime this quarter. So I think money market funds could see some a little bit of a hiccup. Those, especially that use repurchase agreements, I would be very careful with. So what we're recommending to your clients is, is high-quality deposits that are insured and with banks that uh, you feel comfortable with. But that, with. to me, sounds so risk off. 
Yes. Yeah. I, I think so. That's very risk off. I think, but for me, it's more, let's be flexible. I might be giving up a little bit. We had a great year. No one expected the year well, in 19. Right. I was thinking about that. Like why not? <laughs> if you had two consecutive years of 10% gains, you'd be very happy. Sure. Right. And here we had one year over 20%. So why not just put, put it on the side, the side, right? Or put a lot to the side yeah, and, and just wait that. and see what happens. And I think you're seeing that. I think a lot of people are you know, starting to take a little bit off the table. Uh, we've had a great year. Uh, I'm going to, I'm going to cash out a little bit. I might be wrong going into the end of the year. I might be giving up a little bit, but you know, but coming out of that, going into 21, 2021, mm -hmm. I'm going to feel comfortable that I have the market flexibility right. and the liquidity there that I need. All right. Henley Smith. Great to see you. Senior relationship manager, Stonecastle cash management. They look after about $17 billion. He was here with us in our Bloomberg interactive broker studio. Thanks for listening to Bloomberg Business Week. You can subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to our radio show every weekday at 2 p.m. Eastern, only on Bloomberg Radio.